What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. Hey, who doesn't love Batman? One of the most beloved superheroes in all the world. And this week and next, we're going to talk a lot about the Caped Crusader because my guest is Michael Uslan. He is the originator and the executive producer of the Batman movie franchise. And this is a two-parter because there is so much good stuff. Part one, we will learn that one of the real creators of Batman didn't get credit for over 70 years. And we'll also delve into the, the legend, the origin, the evolution of Batman, how Robin came to be, the Joker, yada yada. Then we're going to get into the TV show and the movie, the Tim Burton movie from 1989, how it took 10 years to get that thing made. We'll also talk about the rather unusual casting of Michael Keaton as Batman. Okay, that and much more as we visit with Mike Uslan this week on Hollywood and Levine. Well, I'm sure my listeners would be shocked to learn that I'm a nerd <laughs> and and a huge Batman fan. And so, Mike, first I want to talk about about Batman. And uh why do you think Batman of all of the superheroes is so beloved? I I'll give you my theory, but I want to hear yours first. Well, mine probably can breaks into uh four parts. Uh, the, the most important one is he's a superhero with no superpowers. That's mine. (laughs) Yeah. That's gotta be number one. And audiences worldwide can identify with him. I know that as a kid, more than the Hulk or Superman, I was really able to identify with Batman and believe in my heart of hearts at age eight, that if I studied hard and if I worked out real hard and if my dad bought me a cool car, I could be this guy. <laughs> um, so it starts with that. Number two has got to be he has the most powerful, gut-wrenching origin story of any superhero. And it's a story that transcends cultures as well as borders. And I think it's one of the reasons that has made Batman 
so popular where people can, can identify with him so strongly. I mean, when I was eight and was reading The Origin of Batman, I hadn't even thought about a world in which my parents would be dead. I, I, I can't begin to describe the impact that it had on me as a kid. Um, the third thing for me is Stan Lee's theory of supervillains. Stan said to me one day, Michael, the greatest, most long-lasting superheroes are the ones who have the greatest supervillains because ultimately it's the supervillains who define the superhero. And there's no arguing. Batman has the greatest rogues gallery of supervillains in the history of comics. And I contend inarguably the greatest supervillain ever created in terms of the Joker. And for me, the final thing is simply this. It's the car. I mean, come on, you know, <laughs> that car <laughs> is just magic. And, uh, and I think they add up to uh, coming up to we're closing in on 80 few blah, blah, blah years of success. With yeah, Batman. 1939. Well, yeah. I would add a fifth. This is for yeah. me. The Batcave. Having a secret cave. I love that about Batman. I love that about Zorro. Just having a secret cave sounds really nice, you know. And, and when I'm looking for a house... I always say to my real estate agent, do they have a secret cave? Because that would be a real selling point to me. You know, the cave was actually named the Batcave in the 1943 Batman serial from Columbia Pictures. And the comic books then ran with it. Uh, so it's interesting. It's one of those rare occasions when other media contributed something important to the Batman mythology. Well, let's talk about the origin because... As most people who are Batman fans know, Bob Kane created Batman. But it turns out, and there's this great documentary on Netflix, that he's not the only creator. In fact, there was sort of this silent partner who, more than anything, created the whole world and the whole vision of Batman and this is a gentleman named Bill Finger, and you met him. I did. More <laughs> Tell us once. about that. I still have his autograph. Um, my first meeting with Bill occurred, Ken, at the very first comic book convention held officially on the planet Earth. Um, it was, I believe, July 1964 in a rundown flea bag of a hotel in downtown New York City called the Broadway Central, which a few years later collapsed on itself. And um, a, a little backstory. The man who kind of mentored me as a kid and opened up the world of the history of comics, the golden age of comic books, was a man named Otto Binder, who lived in New Jersey, which is where I'm from. And Otto was the guy responsible for the Marvel family. And um, he co-created Supergirl, Brainiac, um, so many of the Legion of Superheroes, Crypto. Uh, this guy was so legendary in the history of comics. And he was one of the few pros who agreed to be at the first Comic-Con because most of the pros at that time were scared to show up, figuring how could anyone over the age of 12 be interested in comic books? They must be mentally deficient or sociopaths. <laughs> Stan Lee wouldn't show up. He sent his secretary. Um, <laughs> So my friend Bobby and I uh, got to the hotel with my parents, and it's about 9.30 in the morning, and we go to go upstairs to the convention, 
And we see sitting in the bar at 9.30 is Otto Binder with a guy and with his beautiful teenage daughter. And we wave, hi, Otto. He goes, Mike, Bobby, come on in, come on in. So we go into this super sketchy bar and we sit down and we start talking and Otto points to the guy next to him and goes, boys, how'd you like to meet the creator of Batman? And our jaws dropped. Oh my God, yeah. He says, fellas, meet Bill Finger. And now I was confused because I had always seen this little white box with Bob Kane's name on it on every Batman story. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand. So I said, well, I don't understand. And, And Bill Finger himself, straight from the horse's mouth, told me the story. Um, Bob was an artist, and Bob was told by the powers that be at DC Comics back then that this new superhero Superman was doing big business, and they wanted more superheroes. And they were putting out the word to all their creators, come in and bring in superheroes. And Bob had created a thing called Birdman, and then he changed it to Batman. And he, he met Bill at a party in New York City and showed him his sketch for Batman, which was a blonde-haired guy in a little mask in a red costume with real bat wings coming out of his back. Okay. And he said to Bill, I'm not a writer. What do you think of this? And Bill said, well, if you're going to call him Batman, he said, "Uh, I wouldn't color him red. Bats are nocturnal. He should be in black and dark blue and gray. And he said, Superman has superpowers, So if you're going to do a new superhero, it should be somebody without special powers. So why don't you take take out the bat wings and turn it into a cape that looks like bat wings? So Bob did some redrawing. He said, you know, bats have pointy ears. He says, give them a cowl instead of that little mask. And just like the Phantom in the comic strips, it's more mysterious when you white out the eyes. He said, Uh give them gloves and, and give them a belt that has things in it that he can use. And one by one, it is what Bill Finger inputted that had Bob come back with the final drawing of Batman. And he, so then Bill says to him, well, who is this guy? Why is he Batman? He goes, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't figured any of that out. So it was Bill who went back and created the name Bruce Wayne, created the origin story, created Gotham City, which he named after a jewel, uh, jewelry store in the Bronx, uh, not the Bronx and Yonkers and Yonkers and later created the Batmobile. And then with 17, 18 year old Jerry Robinson, who was Bill's first ghost artist and assistant co-created the Joker, Robin and Penguin and Scarecrow and so many of the great early villains. And uh, unfortunately, Bill was not a businessman and he was just happy to write. And at that time in 1939, and you know what? I'll take it all the way up until maybe 1969. Nobody in the comic book business really thought any of this was important or culturally significant. Joe Simon, who is the co-creator of Captain America, I asked him one day, Joe, whatever happened to the original art you and Jack Kirby created for Captain America number one? He said, to the best of my recollection, we used it when they were done printing it to wipe up the ink that had dropped on the floor of the <laughs> art studio. <laughs> and we would put our cigars out on it and put our coffee cups on it. Um, the stuff, to them, it was like Detective Comics number 27, the Intruders Batman, it, it was like yesterday's newspaper and that nobody thought it would last. So Bill never 
attempted to demand half of what Bob was making hand over fist. Um, he was a meek kind of guy, again, not a businessman. And he just kind of buried himself in his work and eventually um, just trying to keep his nose above water in the depression, World War II and later, he just tried to meet deadlines, which he had problems with, tried to get payments for scripts and actually passed away in the 1970s um, virtually penniless in a cold water flat in New York um, and uh, suffered from alcoholism for quite a while. It's a sad story. Meanwhile, Bob Kane was saying, no, no, I'm, I'm the guy who came up with all of that. And he's going to premieres wearing capes and he's showing up at conventions and taking the credit for everything. You know, um, they didn't say this in the documentary, but I'll say it because it's my podcast. What an asshole. Let's just call it the greatest case of de-Stalinization since Russia. Um, (laughs) That's the best and saddest way I could describe what happened. But there is sort of uh, a happy ending of sorts to the story because in the documentary they talk about this comic book fanboy who found out about this and was very intrigued and set about a journey of trying to get Bill Finger shared credit, which eventually, over a long number of years, he did. And on all Batman-related movies, TV, game shows, whatever, he is now a co-creator along with Bob Kane. That is absolutely correct, and that took decades to get to. Um, Same thing with young Jerry Robinson, who was a mentor and a close friend of mine. Um, I helped Jerry with his battles because he wanted recognition as being the co-creator of um, Robin and Joker and many characters. We finally got his deal done uh, with, uh, thanks to the then president of DC Comics, Paul Levitz, and... um, Jerry, quick story. Paul had thrown a special dinner in Central Park at Tavern on the Green uh, just before the premiere in New York of The Dark Knight. And Jerry and his wife were there, and he was close to 90. And I said to him at the end of the dinner, how are you getting to the premiere? Uh, Do you have a limo? And he says, no, we're just going to go out and grab a cab. I said, no, you're not. I said, you're coming with us. And so Jerry and his wife joined us in the limo. We get there, and I don't have to tell you, Ken, blocks and blocks of blocks of people jammed in the, on the sidewalks, um, people dressed as a Joker, dressed as Batman. It, sure. it was amazing. Yeah. And we pull up, and the paparazzi are streaming across there. The red carpet is out. And Jerry said to me, I'll walk around with my wife to the side, and we'll meet you inside. I said, no way. I said, you are coming down the red carpet with me. And I took him and got to the end of the red carpet. And there was nobody there to tell anybody who he was. So <laughs> with my son, David, taking pictures, I just yelled, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jerry Robinson, the co-creator of Robin and the Joker. It took Jerry half an hour to get through the red carpet. <laughs> and then once we were inside, I took Jerry and I took Bill Finger's granddaughter, Athena, 
by the hand and introduced them to Chris Nolan and Christian Bale and Michael Caine and Danny DeVito. And when I explained who they were, the entire cast, the director, everybody physically embraced them and emotionally embraced them, thanking them and Athena's grandfather for having created this modern day mythology that was an important part of their lives as well. It was, it was wonderful. Jerry was teary eyed. He turned to me and said, this is the greatest night of my life. Uh, and I think that, that's a great you know, story. That makes it all worthwhile. Uh, <laughs> love that. So taking a little side tour here to Robin. So Robin was created a few years after Batman and from what I understand, the reasoning behind it was they figured, well, he needs a sidekick. Like Sherlock Holmes has Watson. Uh, maybe Batman should have a sidekick. And they invented Robin. And didn't sales like jump 50% once Robin joined the universe? Well, sales were going up across the board no matter what. Because by 1940, as we were edging our way closer and closer to war, there was an increasing huge audience for comic books, especially morale-boosting superhero comic books from servicemen. And they were selling them at PXs in addition to candy stores and drugstores. So the audience was building, and they were becoming more and more familiar with comic books and more and more familiar with this concept of superheroes. Now, at DC, this came from really two different areas. Number one, The powers that be at DC thought, wouldn't it be great to have a young kid that their main comic book readership, which back then was described as 8 to 12-year-old boys primarily, could more strongly identify with? And that was the reason DC wanted to see it implemented. In fact, and Ken, I don't care who you talk to, every kid from whatever generation, if they were out on the playground playing Batman, it was always the youngest kid that got stuck playing Robin. It wasn't like <laughs> sure. every kid wanted to identify with Robin instead of Batman. <laughs> but the other thing came from Bill Finger. And Bill said, I need to have somebody for, with, for Batman to talk to as I'm writing these comic book stories. I can't just have endless thought balloons, which were popular in comics at the time. Right. He's got to have somebody to talk to. So the two sides came together. And um, Bob Kane had suggested a superpowered kid. His first suggestion was call him Mercury. And it was ultimately Bill and Jerry who crafted Robin, Robin. For Jerry, it was based on a young version of Robin Hood. And he showed me, he still had in his collection, the Wyeth art book uh, that he did of Robin Hood. Oh, wow. The paintings that Wyeth did in that Robin Hood book, if you look at it, it's Robin's costume. That's where Jerry kind of swiped from. And that's where that came from. Interesting. So what is your involvement? How how are you involved in the Batman world? Um, When I was a kid, I have to say a kid in my 20s, Um, I had what was, I guess, one of my better ideas, which was to raise some money privately, go to DC Comics, try to buy the rights to Batman, and then set out to make dark and serious Batman movies. And the reason goes back to a cold night in January of 1966. 
Uh, I am now 14 and a half years old. I am now a hardcore comic book geek. Um, mm -hmm. My collection was already around 30,000 comic books dating back to 1936. Wow, 30,000. So it's not just superheroes. Oh, you you have Casper everybody. the Friendly Ghost comic books and stuff, right? Casper, Richie Rich, Archie, Classics <laughs> Illustrated, Tarzan. Bob Hope, um, everything. Sergeant Rock. Yeah, yeah. I, I was maybe the only kid in America sad when Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis comics turned into the <laughs> Jerry Lewis comics the next month. <laughs> I collected absolutely everything. And and my, my parents were so great because... They were supportive of a kid with all of these weird, strange interests. Uh, we moved into a new house in 1962. My dad never once got his car in the garage. Instead, <laughs> he built shelves around three walls of the garage and loaded up my comics. And then we started to fill up the floor. And but my, my dad's entire life, he never got his car in the garage. Um, that, <laughs> That's that love. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it really was. So... Um, I, you know, I had already known the origin of Batman and how dark and serious um, the original Batmans were, inspired directly by the shadow. In fact, more than inspired, lifted directly from the shadow. And um, I had been waiting in great anticipation for three months for that show to come on the air. And then this night, it starts. And I'm going, okay. This animation, it kind of looks like Bob Kane, Jerry Robinson art. That's cool. So this is the Batman TV series with Adam, TV series. Adam West. Yeah. Yeah. And it's in color. Mm -hmm. The sets are extravagant. The car's cool. And then I simultaneously am thrilled and horrified by <laughs> what I see unfold, which takes me really, it took, it took me 20 minutes for it to really hit me. Oh my God, this is a comedy. They are making a joke out of Batman. The whole world is now laughing at Batman. And that just killed me. And it was downstairs in our den that night that I made a vow. Like Bruce Wayne, young Bruce Wayne once made a vow. Um, he made his vow over the mutilated bodies of his parents in the street. Mine were safe in the kitchen upstairs. Right. You're watching a color thing. TV. Yeah. yeah with a, a bowl of popcorn. Mm -hmm. But I, I said to my two friends, I said, somehow, someday, I'm going to find a way to show the world the true Batman, the creature of the night who stalks these really disturbed criminals in the shadows. And I'm going to find a way to what I ultimately figured out was to erase from the collective consciousness of the world culture, these new words like pow, zap, and wham. And, um, but what do I do, Ken? Uh, you know me, I'm a blue collar kid from Jersey. My dad was a stonemason. My mom was a bookkeeper. I didn't come from money. I couldn't buy my way into Hollywood. I had no relatives in Hollywood. I didn't know anybody in Hollywood. So for me, the question was, how do you jump the Grand Canyon? How do you make your dreams come true? How do you get there from here? And that made me look for every opportunity for a crack in a door to jam my foot in and try to push my way into the comic book business. Um, my dream since I was eight was to one day write Batman comics and to push into the movie or television business. And that, that's where it all really began. And eventually you, you became an attorney. I did. And I'm, a, I'm now a recovering attorney. 
<laughs> and you found a way to secure those rights. Yeah, um, I'll make the long story as short as possible. Uh, in the early 1970s, uh, I had an opportunity at Indiana University in Bloomington, which is where I was going as an undergrad. They, they said if anyone can create a course, a college course that had not been taught before and had the backing of a department on campus, you could go in and pitch it to the dean and they would be willing to um, accredit the course for three hours of credit. So I went to the folklore department and I said, comic books are modern day folklore. Our superheroes are our modern day mythology. And comic books are a legitimate American art form as indigenous to this country as jazz. Um, that the, the guy who I spoke to, the professor said, you know, you're right, Michael, uh, I buy this. Because it doesn't matter if you call it King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table or the Justice League or the Avengers, it's all still stories of brave heroes battling the demons and dragons of their day. It's very legitimate, I, yeah. So I went in and I pitched it to the dean who thought I was full of, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, but but I, I pulled it out of my butt and I, I got the thing accredited. So I became the world's first college professor of comic books. And when word got out... Um, TV cameras were in every one of my classes. Reporters were in every one of my classes. And that massive publicity brought me to the attention of Stan Lee at Marvel Comics and to Saul Harrison, who was vice president at DC Comics. And they each called me. And DC wound up flying me to New York. They offered me a job. They thought I was very innovative. And I would work at DC in the summers, and they would put me on retainer while I finished school. And that is exactly what led me to the opportunity uh, by 1975 to start writing detective comics, start writing Batman. And my dream came true. And I immediately panicked and said, oh, my God, my dream came true. I don't have a dream. I need another dream. <laughs> and it took about 10 minutes for the epiphany. That's when I remembered back to that night in 1966. And I said, OK, I, I've got to start on the path to make dark and serious Batman movies. So I went back to Saul Harrison, who became then the president of DC and said, Saul, I want to buy the rights to Batman and make these dark and serious movies. And he looked like Macaulay Culkin on the poster for home alone. He was, he was a lovely man. He was very fatherly toward me. He says, Michael, for God's sake, don't do this. Don't you understand son? Whenever they call you son, you know, you're in trouble. Don't you understand son? that since Batman went off the air on television, the brand is as dead as a dodo. Nobody's interested in Batman anymore. And I said, yeah, but nobody's ever seen a dark and serious comic book movie or superhero movie. It'll almost be like a new form of entertainment. He says, Michael, is there any way I can talk you out of this? And I said, no. And he said, all right, schmoozle, come on in. And uh, after a six-month negotiation, which gave me and my new partner – uh, who was my dad's age, Ben Melnicker. He Ben was a legend in the movie business. Uh, he was the executive vice president of MGM in its Tiffany years, chairman of their film selection committee, and put together a few movies like Ben Hur, Dr. Zhivago, 2001, Gigi. Uh, on October 3rd, 1979, we paid the money, we signed the contract, bought the rights to Batman. I quit my attorney job, which I had by then, Flew out to Hollywood saying, this is going to be a piece of cake. Everyone's going to line up at my doorstep. Just think of the sequels, the toys, the games, the animation. <laughs> only, only to find, Ken, that I was turned down by every single studio in Hollywood. 
they laughed at me. They told me it was the worst idea they ever heard. And as a result, it actually, from the time Ben and I bought the rights to Batman until we got the first movie out in 1989, it took 10 years. And it was okay. just 10 years of rejection. So uh, how did the first one come about? Well, after we were turned down by everybody, and believe me, there's an anecdote I can tell you for each studio rejection, <laughs> which I sadistically enjoy throwing back in their faces periodically. Um, Ben said, you know, there's a younger man. He's much younger than the people that we've been talking to, the old world studio execs. I try to hire him at MGM to run MGM production with two other guys. And he now is at Casablanca Records. And it's Peter Goober, who his partner is Neil Bogart. And I just learned that they're getting a cash infusion from Polygram to start a film division. He goes, I think Peter would be a lot more hip and a lot more open to what you're saying than some of these other guys have been. And uh, I pitched it to Peter and Neil, and they loved it. And we were able to get our development going. We hired Tom Mankiewicz, who had really been the script doctor for the first two Superman movies, had written a couple of the best James Bond movies, um, I, I forget at that time if he had heart to heart on television, um, but Tom was amazing and we were, we were able to get the ball rolling. And in terms of studios, it went from Universal to Filmways, which then was bought by Orion, to almost 20th Century Fox until finally um, the Casablanca Polygram folks were able to get Warner Brothers to come in. Uh, but that's the process. And that probably ate up the first four years. <laughs> and how'd you get Tim Burton? Um, I got a call. I think it was from Roger Birnbaum, a um, longtime friend of mine, a great executive and producer in the film industry, who said, um, you got to see the final cut, we've, the, the fine cut we have of this crazy movie from this young director. And they set up a screening of Pee-wee's Big Adventure for me, the fine cut. <laughs> and I came out of there and I said, oh, my God, I have never seen a more brilliant marriage of direction and art direction in my life. I'd love to meet this guy. So the studio set up three lunches for me with Tim. And my mission was to indoctrinate him into the world of the dark Batman. So um, I quickly realized this guy was brilliant. And was shocked that he did not have a background growing up in comic books. So although it was important to give him the dark and serious comic books, which I gave him stuff right out of my collection, it was even more important to keep him away from the silly Batman stuff. The, when Batman, Bat Genie, uh, Bat Robot, um, the Super Batman of Planet X, etc., etc., <laughs> um, and, and keep him focused on the darkness of it. Um, by the end of the third lunch, I, I knew this was the right guy. And, uh, that's when things really began to coalesce. So now it's time to cast the movie. And I have to say, you guys went with a rather out of the box choice in yeah. Michael Keaton. When you think of Michael Keaton, you don't necessarily think of, you know, action heroes, <laughs> When Tim said Michael Keaton, first of all, I thought he was kidding. And it took 20 minutes before they convinced me this, this was a real thing. I was apoplectic. 
because <laughs> yeah. I, I had already spent like seven and a half years on this to do a dark and serious Batman. And now I'm picturing the posters and billboards. Mr. Mom is Batman. Um, well, I could, let me back up. Before this, I had told everybody the only actor who could play the Joker circa 1980s was Jack Nicholson. And this is where the casting story begins. It was the beginning of Memorial Weekend, 1980. Uh, I'm leaving New York to get on the bus back to Jersey for the long weekend. I get the afternoon paper, the post. I open it up to the movie section. There's two big movies opening that weekend. The Empire Strikes Back and a horror film, The Shining. And I turn the page and for the first time I see this iconic picture of Jack Nicholson looking totally maniacal, kind of peering around a doorway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, very demonic. Here's yes. Johnny, right? Here's yeah. Johnny shot. And I said, oh my God, this is the Joker. And I tore it out. As soon as I got home, I ran to my desk. I took white out. Uh, I, I hope your listeners know what white out is or was. <laughs> Some um, of them I, do. <laughs> <laughs> I whited out Jack's face. I took a red pen and did his lips. I took a magic marker and did his hair. And I showed this to everybody connected to the movie. And ultimately, the day that Nicholson was hired was the greatest moment in my career to that point. It couldn't have been more than 10 days or two weeks later that I get the call. Well, what do you think of Tim's new idea hiring Michael Keaton to play Batman? So I said to Tim, I go, <laughs> we're supposed to do a dark and serious Batman. What are you thinking? And he said, Michael, he said, uh, if we're going to do the first ever dark and serious superhero movie, comic book movie, and we want to get audiences to suspend their disbelief, audiences who have never read a comic book all around the world. I'm telling you right now, I do not know how to take a quote unquote serious actor. Now, in the late 80s, who's that going to be? It's Kevin Costner. Um, Dennis Quaid, Harrison Ford, James Caan. He goes, I don't know how to take any of them and show them getting into a bat costume without getting unintentional laughs from the audience. He says, but Michael Keaton, whom I've worked with before, I know can deliver this, can convince audiences that Bruce Wayne is so driven, so obsessed, to the point of being psychotic, that audiences will go, oh yeah, that's a guy who would get dressed up as a bat. I said, but Tim, I said, he's a comedian. So the first thing they did, they, sh they set up a screening of the rough cut of a movie called Clean and Sober. And I walked out of that and I said, I take it all back. This guy is a phenomenal, serious actor. I said, but Tim, he's my height. He's got a receding hairline. He doesn't have the musculature. For God's sake, he doesn't have the square jaw of Batman. And Tim said, you know, when we go from one medium to another medium, a square jaw does not a Batman make. He goes, I can carve musculature into a costume. I can cheat height. I can fix hair. He goes, that's not the issue. He said, the issue is, he goes, you have to understand this, Michael. He goes, if we're going to do this first revolutionary superhero movie, this movie cannot be about Batman. Ken, my jaw must have bounced off my feet. Um as I was melting into the ground, he then said to me, this movie must be about Bruce Wayne. And that, Ken, was the big idea. Ah. That, that is the big idea that changed That's really Hollywood. great. 
change the world culture. I mean, think about it today because it impacts every single genre movie made to this day. Look at it. Um, they, Marvel shouldn't be calling those movies Iron Man. They should be calling them Tony Stark. The Spider-Man movies are really Peter Parker. It, this is how, we, how Tim and his genius broke the mold. And there's a corollary to it. His other thing he said was, from the opening frames of this movie, Gotham City must be the third most important character in this piece. Because if initially we can't get audiences to believe in Gotham City, they will never be able to believe in a guy like Batman or the Joker. And he was absolutely right about those. Um, and that was the breakthrough. That was really the breakthrough. Now, what happened was the same thing that happened to me initially. The fan reaction was off the charts. And to tell you that this was an era before internet, before social media, <laughs> and it still was worldwide through the roof. And I thought they were going to surround the studio with pitchforks and torches. It was that bad. And they said, oh, my God, you guys, you're going to kill Batman forever now. Here you've got the director of Pee-wee's Big Adventure with a stand-up comedian who's Mr. Mom going to do Batman. You, you've killed it for everybody forever. And that's why a trailer had to be rushed out just to show the world, no, we're taking this very seriously. That was a this great is, trailer, too, as I recall. It, it was it, it was a game changer. It was a complete game changer. You know, still to this day, when I appear at like New York Comic Con or San Diego Comic Con, I will often show that trailer again to bring everybody back to that pivotal moment where everything changed. And you know how history repeats itself. So we've had the same fan reaction over the years to um, the hiring of um, Heath Ledger. The fans said, oh, my God, you're hiring a gay cowboy to play the Joker. It will destroy the character forever until they see the movie, of course. And then right. they don't want anyone else to ever play the role. Same thing happened with Ben Affleck. Same thing happened with Robert Pattinson. Um, yet every time that the fans actually wait to see what the vision of the filmmaker is and how that actor plays into that vision, they're related. Okay, that'll do it for part one. Part two, next week, Mike Uslan and I will talk more about Batman. We'll talk about the movie franchise, the various reboots, the different actors who played Batman, Christopher Nolan, and we'll also get into Superman and why I hate Zack Snyder. Okay, a lot of great stuff next week. Part two with Mike Uslan. Thanks so much for listening. Also thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, John Wolfert, and Bruce and Jason Miller. If you want to email me, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Ken Levine. Also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Please subscribe if you haven't already. We will join you next week. The same bat channel, same bat podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. Hollywood and Levine. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home... Yes, cool. ...or attending one live... Goal! 
You can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.